If I'm managing wildlife effectively and at scale, I'm managing vegetation. And fire is the easiest way that I can do that. And I told Clarence, I said, I'd like to have a fire demonstration area that has not only a fire timing treatment, but also a season of fire treatment. By varying your, your timing of burning and your season of burning, you can increase diversity of plants and a diversity of wildlife that might be using those sites. We have three early growing season fire treatments and three late growing season fire treatments. One of each is burned every every year, one every other year, and one every three years. So just by using fire, just by the seed bank response, nothing has ever been planted back there at all. We have tremendous species richness and a diversity, and it's neat to see how it can differ with regard to how frequent the fire occurs and to which season it occurs. The educational benefit of those demonstration areas, I mean, if somebody wants to come out here, this is a great way for them to learn and see and know, okay, if I do this, this, and this, I can have that. The award-winning Tennessee Wildcast is on the air with the latest on hunting, fishing, boating, wildlife watching, and all things outdoors. Make welcome your host, drummer and outdoor expert novice, Jason Harmon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Tennessee Wildcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for watching, for listening. we got another great show lined up for you today. We are... Still on location here at Bridgestone Firestone WMA, and I'm excited to have Mimi helping me co-host again. Uh, this is just a great place to have a show, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love I love it here. Outdoors, not in the studio. I like being out when we can, so it's fun to get out here, and appreciate you lining this up. Today, we've got Nathan... Um, Will Hyde. Will Hyde <laughs> and Dr. Craig Harper, and I'm excited to talk about some UT fire demonstration areas and quail and things that happen here and knowing why Craig's here today so it's going to be a fun conversation. Good stuff, good yeah. stuff. Thank y'all for being here and uh, we'll jump in I guess with introductions. Uh, yep. Na- My Na- name is Nathan Wilhite. Yeah, Nathan you kick us off. Yes sir. My name is Nathan Wilhite. I'm the wildlife manager here for Bridgestone Firestone um, WMA and uh, so Craig Harper. Uh, professor of Wildlife Management at the University of Tennessee and the Extension Wildlife Specialist. Awesome, awesome. Well, glad to have both of you. Nathan, we had you on the previous show, and that was a great conversation. Uh, learned a little bit about your background, but but Dr. Carper, would you fill us in on your background a little bit? How did you get to where you are now? I mean, you've you've been you've done it all. Mimi, I thought you said we only had 28 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I I would guess that it's encyclopedia full. Uh, the 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 very quick version. Of course, I'm from North Carolina, and once I finished school and finished a PhD, I uh, applied for and was fortunate to get a job at the University of Tennessee, and that was in May of 1998. I've uh, been here ever since, and uh, Tennessee has been very very good to me, and the university is a tremendous place to work. It's been it's been a very good time. Very awesome. a very learning experience as well. Mm-hmm. I know you've impacted a lot of people that come through that school. Uh, your name, I hear your name a lot, and you've made a major impact on those wildlife students that come through. Well, that we campus. we have an outstanding faculty, and uh, I think the students really enjoy going through our program. Of course, I have graduate students. Uh, that's been a, a rich part of my life, and in working with them, and and we've done we. We've done all we can to try and provide as much management information we can to both uh, state agency folks as well as private landowners. Well, growing up, did you know you were going this direction? Is that where that where you wanted to be? No, all I knew was that I wanted to be outside, and <laughs> you know, I, I hunted and fished all the time, and so after. Uh, after getting out of high school, I worked a year doing plumbing work before I realized, you know, 
this is not what I want to do from here on out. I want to be outside. And uh, so I thought, you know, I think I'll go to school to be a game warden. And uh, it wasn't until I was really into the program at, at Haywood Community College that uh, I learned, you know what? I'm not going to school to be a game warden. I'm going to school to be a wildlife technician. And this is this is great. Yeah. I'm going to get paid to manage fields and woods and wildlife populations, pull bear teeth and deer jawbones and all this kind of thing. <laughs> You're you speaking know, our just, language, was, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was all good. And, you know, God had a plan. And uh, when I finished there, it, it uh, went to work for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Agency and then on to school to finish a, a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. And I never intended at that point to have a Ph.D., but that's what I did and was able to find a job in extension where I could work with, with people and, and agencies all across the state and beyond, and it's been, it's been really good. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a cool story. I know. And, you know, those of us that work in wildlife, you're kindred immediately mm-hmm. um, because we all feel that guttural pull to wildlife. We're all in it for the same reasons. I always say you don't work for it unless you love it. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> no one falls into wildlife work. Uh, you know, yeah. it from a very young age on. Yeah, very true. Well, go ahead, Jason. Well, I was just going to say, you know, if you watched the previous show, you learned a little bit about Bridgestone. But, Nathan, do you want to kind of jump in a little bit and just kind of give us a brief overview again of what this property has and what it's here for and what it's managed, you know, managed here for? Absolutely. Bridgestone is a 20,000-acre wildlife management area um, spread across White County, Van Buren County, a little bit in Cumberland. Um, but we've got a broad array of landscapes and ecosystems that we get to, you know, play around in and, and work in from open grass grasslands to um, hardwood and pine savannas to closed canopy forest and we got the Candy Fork River runs th- right through the middle so we've got patrons that do everything from mm. um, whitewater kayak in the, in the springtime to um, coming out here and following beagles uh, chasing rabbits around. Chasing so rabbits, yeah. That's right. You got many species of birds, you got rabbits, you got deer, turkey, it's just it's just eat up. That's right. It's a place to be. That's right. But it is a quail focal area. It sure is. And, uh, and we love it for that. And we can hear the Bob White singing around us this morning. Mm. It's absolutely fantastic. Magical time of year for that. That's yeah. Right. And yeah. If, if people haven't heard that song, this is a great place to come and hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, or our other quail um, focus areas across the state. Right. Yeah. This is just one of, of many. So... Um, so if someone's never been here before, they're going to hear that Bob White quail here. But, but this area was chosen. Um, it was gifted to the state, mm-hmm. That's right. but it was chosen um, for quail folk, uh, focus area. And it and the UT partnership started because of what this land was prior to it, it being gifted. So, what was that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, some of the fire and burn demonstration area that we're going to talk about, that was even before the designation of a quail focal area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there were plans in place about kind of ecological restoration before we were even talking about prioritizing that little game bird that we spent a little time talking about. Um, when did UT come into the picture? I believe it was 2006 when we began having different field treatments out here on on the WMA and we had some burn plots out here on the farm unit in 2008-2009 and along about that time I think it was in 2008 uh, I had been recently to Oklahoma and visited the fire plots at Pushmataha 
and came back and I was out here with Clarence Coffee, who was regional manager for Region yeah. 3 at yeah. that time. Great guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so full of, of interest for fire and savannas mm-hmm. and uh, the effects of fire on both the vegetation and the animal communities. And we were riding around on, on the WMA looking at some of the plots that we had. And, and I told him about being at Push Mataha. And I said, Clarence, we, we, need, we need fire plots here mm-hmm. in, in, in Tennessee. But, you know, wh- wh- why can't we do that here? Because uh, you have such interest in fire and it's not easy putting a square peg in a round hole if uh you know the manager property owner whoever doesn't want to implement fire that's going to be difficult to get that done and of course i knew clarence did and uh and and the manager here was 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 fully amenable to uh to helping us set something up and clarence said you know what I think I got just the place. He said, there's a section right back here that we haven't, quote, done anything with except burn it a couple of times since Bowater owned it. And I think it was in 1997. the best we could check from from records that the loblolly pines that had been planted there were harvested mm. and of course that cleared the area and so uh the manager had had burned the area a couple of times since then but that had been about it you know no food plots no tree planting no you know any anything else and uh it had a a road or trail network such that it could easily be divided up into different sections and uh, the other fire plots across the country for example at Tall Timbers or Pushmataha they have uh, uh, a timing treatment burned every year burned every other year burned every three years etc and I have always been very well for many years been very interested in the effects of timing a fire you know for example we know and 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 learned uh years ago how you can disc at different times of the year and stimulate a different plant community depending on when you disc okay and so John Grushy was a graduate student here back in the early 2000s, and we did some uh, preliminary work looking at the effects of fire when we implemented it in late summer or winter or spring or, or what have you. And, and I told Clarence, I said, I'd like to have a fire demonstration area that has not only a fire timing treatment, but also a season of fire treatment. And so we were able to uh, divvy up these units such that we have three early growing season fire treatments and three late growing season fire treatments so one of each is burned every year one every other year and one every three years and then down at the uh, at the the end of the the whole complex is what we call a woodland that was the area that had not been planted to pines it was still in in mixed hardwoods and so in the woodland what we decided to do was to just burn it at random and so whenever it we burned the next time we would decide by drawing a number out of a hat one two or three <laughs> and and decide the timing by s or spring whether it's going to be in, wow. the, in the in the spring or fall and so and, and that kind of mimics at a certain level you know how you would see naturally occurring fire that that uh may occur at, at most any time of the year of course this time here is is the least prevalent of of fire in in tennessee because of the moisture regime you know we get you know 50 some inches of of rain per year yeah across most of the state and so from 
June through early August or so, that's, that's a very, very difficult time to burn, especially in the woods. And so in, in fields, especially in dry conditions, you can burn during that period of time. But uh, during that midsummer is the time that you wouldn't have as uh, frequent a fire. That's good and information so, because I, I've always thought, you know, burn certain times of the year. But it's it's neat to hear that you're burning in different seasons and trying different things. It's and, and one of the things that we try to get across to, to managers and, and landowners who can and want to use fire is that every day is a potential burn day. You, you, you shouldn't well, concentrate yeah. all your burning at just one time of the year because you're going to get stagnant with regard to the vegetation effect and, and the animal response. Mm -hmm. And so by varying your, your timing of burning and your season of burning, you can increase diversity of plants and a diversity of wildlife that might be using those sites. That's very cool. I know. Uh, how many amazing. acres are we working here when you talk about these demonstration plots? Are you, you're not on just a 20-acre plot. The, no, the demonstration area is like 160 acres, something that's like right. that, and then that's div divvied into uh, seven units, uh, six which have the, the frequency and, mm -hmm. and timing of fire and the one woodland area. And uh, those individual units vary from somewhere around 20 to 35 acres each and and that is very unique because to my knowledge there may be some somewhere and I'm not aware of but to my knowledge those are the largest fire treatment units of anywhere that I know of most of these uh, fire units are somewhere in the neighborhood of, of one to five acres okay. and so by having larger treatment units we're able to see how fire might go into drainages it might be on a little bit of a different aspect and and it gives you lots of area to do your your plant sampling as as well as as wildlife sampling and even sampling on a 30 acre area is, is somewhat limited of course for for wildlife response but you can begin to see some some difference in in response of, of various species so it's, oh, go ahead Nathan. yeah the only thing i'd add is you know it, 160 acres, right? As a WMA manager, I'd love to have way more than that, right? You know? Uh, so, and, yeah. and, and he does. He's one of those that gets after it and, and will will burn whatever needs to be done for specific objectives. It's just that, you know, the, the, the demonstration plots are, are the size that I mentioned. And uh, it's open to where we can have groups and we have a tour trail yeah. where we can go through and, right. and groups, can, yeah, groups can see all of the different fire treatments and and there's yeah signs at, at each of them so you know keep you aware of, of where you are along the trail so when this started did you set out saying we want to know what's the best time of year to burn for a specific species or were you just looking at overall diversity no i, I guess what my thought was i want to know more about the effects of fire at different times of year on the plant community and then how we might use that information to guide our management for specific wildlife species. It's amazing. Yeah. I love it. I, I love that that people dive into these topics because if you didn't, where would we be? Where yeah. would, you know, throughout um, science here and, and we are we don't necessarily always like using the terms of science-based agency, but we've got to know. We want proof. We don't just want to go with, hey, what we think. We want to go with that knowledge base, um, and, and this is what what it, it stems from. Yeah, and my graduate students and technicians, they collect the plant uh, data every summer, and so what is, what is so interesting is that, of course, as I mentioned, that area was 
and planted loblolly up until the the late 1990s. So little diversity. Yeah, and and so pretty much immediately after that, just by the seed bank response, nothing has ever been planted back there at all. Mm-hmm. We have more than 200 species of plants. And Dwayne Estes, who is you know <laughs> one of the best botanists that that uh, that you'll that you'll meet, he's been here and done field days with me and whatnot, and and he's just like Craig, look at this and and look at that. I, I've ne- the last one we did, he found a species that had not even been uh, determined yet. He said, I, I don't think this one has actually been uh, determined. You know, he's all excited That's about that. So crazy. just by using fire, wow. frequent fire, and on this landscape where fire, of, of course, was, was so prevalent historically, mm. uh, we have tremendous species richness and a diversity in terms of their distribution mm-hmm. across that site back there and and it's neat to see how it can differ with regard to how frequent the fire occurs and to which season it occurs all from a cattle farm i mean yeah. that it just amazes me what what is able to be retained in the in the land and the ground and it's brought back to fire i just want to quickly emphasize he said the word seed bank and I, until just recently i had a student ask me what's what do you mean by seed bank mm-hmm. Right. So much now, everybody wants to talk about let's plant pollinators, let's plant CRP, let's plant native warm season grasses. We're not planting the lick. I've got seed drills that never move. They're going to be antiques one day. I'm just going to let them <laughs> sit out here and rust, and then we'll just look at them as a relic of the past because there is seed there that was suppressed by lob pine for who knows how long, right? So and, that and all across just remaining the, in the soil. All across the Cumberland Plateau and everywhere else, that, that is absolutely the case. You know, it, it's just there. seed and rhizome. It's yeah, just waiting, waiting for, for the right conditions. Yeah, wow. that's amazing. Love uh, it. The educational benefit of those those demonstration areas right. i mean if somebody want to come out here they've got a cattle farm or somebody just purchased a farm that's had cattle and they want to they want to do what you're doing out here this is a great way for them to learn and it, see and know okay if i do this this and this i could have that it educates know? me on a daily basis <laughs> you, you have this tremendous seed bank uh, a diversity of, of seed that is just waiting to to come up and respond yeah and and nathan from our last show we know and um I know that you can expand on this, Dr. Harper, but it's amazing what diversity comes back from the insect community all the way up to huntable species. And then here at the focal area for um, bobwhite quail. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that, that cereal sheet, but Nathan, I really wondered how all of this is benefiting you as a manager. And then could you speak to a little bit on where you're seeing this implemented throughout um, the region and beyond? That, that's a pretty Pretty easy answer, right? <laughs> you know, when you're when I'm managing wildlife, everybody thinks it's what am I getting my hands on, right? If I'm managing wildlife effectively and at scale, I'm managing vegetation, right? Um, and and fire is the easiest way that I can do that, right? And and the greatest way outside of hunting to manipulate wildlife populations is to give them desirable vegetation characteristics for their life cycle. And so um, that's that's where it comes into play for me on a daily basis and informing management decisions, not just here at the farm, not just at the fire demonstration area, but all across this property. Um, where other places, there's unfortunately not a ton of places that, that we're really doing this at a big scale, right? Dr. Harper's been a big part at um, Foothills WMA, uh, where Bill Smith really helped kind of lead the charge and doing some short leaf restoration there. And, um, and that's 
a phenomenal place to visit and see over in East Tennessee. Um, Catoosa WMA has, has a, a couple of different savannas that are being managed differently for different objectives, right? But the but the response is the same. They were salvage cut or you know from southern pine beetles and followed up with prescribed fire and and now you've got some very unique assemblages of, of plants and and wildlife responding to that so some of the way it used to be too i mean that's some right. of the properties are bringing brought back to what they used to that's be that's exactly right and I, I, one thing i'd like to point out not everything benefits from open landscapes you know a, a gray squirrel and an oven bird a wood thrush <laughs> you're not going to find those out there but they have lots of forested area they're, they're not limited by that so we have other species that require this open landscape whether it's meadowlarks or grasshopper sparrows dick thistles, which you'll hear out here uh, many others but then there's also the generalist and of course the most popular generalists that we have are deer and turkeys. <laughs> deer and turkeys do not require this. They don't require closed canopy woods, but their populations respond when they have a little something of a lot of different vegetation types and, and seral stages. Mm. And so what that means is they have additional food resources and cover resources, whether that be for nesting or brooding or fawning or escape or what have you, when there's a variety of vegetation types and, and successional stages uh, available. And so I stress this so much to people who are managing their properties for deer and turkeys because that's the primary species that are being managed for on right. land that's being managed. Right. But when they do that, when they have these early successional openings, savannas, old fields, etc., that they're managing for deer and turkeys, then they are managing for the non-game species and including the pollinators by default. And, mm -hmm. and many of these people don't even know what a grasshopper sparrow or an indigo bunning or whatever is, but because they're managing their property, and, and I'm going to say in as appropriate way as possible by having a diversity of vegetation types, then they're managing those species without necessarily even knowing it. And, and I've told folks that I would bet deer hunters right now who are managing their property in, in Tennessee accordingly are managing for or, and providing for more pollinators than all of the pollinator enthusiasts combined because those landowners who are managing their property, most of them are doing that for those game species and we're able to use these game species to help non-game as well. So, so for someone that's never heard the term seral stage, if they've never um, understood that, how would you describe that? And then would you would you give a few examples of each of those stages and what it provides for? Um, <clears throat> there's a, a, a term, it's ecological succession. And that's one of the guiding principles in, in ecology. And what that means is the plant community, the species composition, changes over time without disturbance. And we can implement disturbance to maintain certain species of plants and so if we went out here and disked a big section of, of the field behind us within a couple of rains during the growing season something's going to germinate and start growing mm -hmm. and most of those are going to be annual plants annual grasses annual forbs and they're going to persist for one two maybe three years but they're going to gradually give way to perennial species and that might be broom sedge and blackberry and desmodiums and uh 
old field aster and, and some other species and without disturbance within at, uh, on over most of Tennessee according to soil type etc within about three or four years you're going to have a lot of woody species starting to come in mm. It might be eastern red cedar, it could be Virginia pine, it could be uh, black cherry, uh, wing down. And these are what we call co uh, colonizing woody species, most of which have seed with little wings on them, which we call samaras. They blow in the wind, and if you're in a, uh, a wet bottom, of course, it's going to be box elder and sweet gum and green ash and, and species such as that. And so they colonize the field, they start coming up, but they are shade intolerant. And so you've gone from an annual plant community, which if we try to keep it simple, and, and we do this especially with, uh, with young, younger age kids and, and also with landowners, it's a very simplistic way of, of uh, describing ecological succession, that annual plant community, we might call that stage one. When that gives way to the perennial species, we call that stage two. Mm -hmm. And then when that first woody community b becomes to, uh, gets developed, that's stage three. Well, after time, and we can go right over here where there's Virginia pine stands that are uh, 40 to 50 years old, and they're beginning to fall apart, and we see oaks and hickories and sourwood mm -hmm. and uh, sassafras and different species coming up from within. Those are... Uh, species that are intermediate in their shade tolerance and they will replace those first colonizing woody species well on some sites over a long period of time shade tolerant species such as white pine uh, eastern hemlock sugar maple american beech those that can grow in shade they will eventually replace the oaks the hickories the other intermediates and then that would be termed the fifth successional stage and so there is your suite of successional stages that are possible not all possible on every site some sites might not hold or, or sustain uh, some of the trees in, in what we would call stage four or five, it might be shallow and rocky and, and not able to uh, support those species. But that's essentially the suite of successional stages. And note that within any of the successional stage, that successional stage can be made up of several different vegetation types. It doesn't have to be, you know, just these three or four species. There's a wide uh, variety of species that could represent that successional stage, and that is where our management comes into play. Our management influences the species composition, and it also influences the structure, which is the, the height and the density of vegetation. And what we find is more wildlife species respond more to the structure of vegetation vegetation than exactly the species of vegetation. Uh, you know, yeah. when you think about uh, the nesting requirements of, of a brown thrasher, for example, mm -hmm. it hurts my feelings, but a brown thrasher had just as soon nest in, uh, or, and hang out and forage in uh, non-native shrubs such as Chinese privet <laughs> and, uh, and, and autumn olive or whatever as it would uh, wild plum and sumac. And so it's that structure that's driving the presence of uh, what we call the occupancy of many wildlife species. And that's, I mean, that's, there's so much. That's amazing. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, and there's so much to it, but that's, that's truly why we're looking at uh, species like Bob White and we recognize that we can't have beech or oak 
be predominant here, and that's why this this section of Bridgestone Firestone. Well, is it's so not magical. a forest species. Yeah, they they require open landscapes. Yeah, yeah. we need it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all yeah. the lands. It's amazing how it, the different levels, different cereal stages benefits different types, and you know it's and you can have this if you wanted it. Just that's right. Uh, I think it's neat to come out here and check out these these demonstration areas and be able to replicate that. Yeah, I'm we, even thinking, we, I'm like, okay, I got this many acres. I can do that and that. And we do have a private lands biologist that works yeah. with the general public. Go yeah. to our website, um, and you can link to that and find that person in your area. It's a great Dr. Harper, resource. you're such a wealth of knowledge. Nathan, you're so passionate and also a wealth yes. of knowledge. We appreciate We've, both of you and your absolutely. time. We've got an open-door policy, and neither one of us are shy about talking about I it and showing it. I think we could it, do so, about uh, 10 episodes. <laughs> Episodes and not not skim the surface. Well, we have some landowners that come out here and look around and see, and, and we'd love to have more of that if we can. So, give me a 20-second spill on what's happening today while you're here on the property, 4-H. Well, today we're going to have the educational tour for the Tennessee 4-H Wildlife Judging Contest, which has which is a program that has been sponsored by TWRA since 1978 when Jim Byford and Tom Hill started it. Cool. And so tomorrow is our state contest, and the winners from the three regional contests, three teams per each region, come in tomorrow, and we have the, the state wildlife judging contest, of which Tennessee has won 10 of the last 11 national championships. Wow. So we're awesome. very proud of our Tennessee and they do, teams. They do, they're coming out here talking specifically about tall grass prairie, is that correct? Yes, yeah. the, the eco region is, uh, is tall grass prairie that All we're right. using. Well, this so is what better place well, to come yeah. and do it? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Stay connected with TWRA by visiting our website at tnwildlife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, it's all about Tennessee wildlife. It's what we do. Tennessee Wildcast will be on the air again next week. We'll see you then.